0: Well good morning. Hey, it's good to be with you guys. I'm glad that you are here. Uh, As Michael said, I am not Pastor Mark Kring. If we, I know, shocker, right? Uh, If we haven't met before, my name is Kyle Denny. I am the youth pastor here as well as the director of finance. So if you ever have any questions about middle school ministry, high school ministry, uh, if there's a question you have about giving or about how the finances of the church are run, I'm there for you. I'd love to be a resource however I can. Um, Since Mark isn't teaching, we're going to take a break from our E2E study, and we're going to be in Colossians, the book of Colossians today. So if you have a Bible and you want to flip your way there, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 to 29. Uh, I wanted to start, before we read that passage, just with a heavy story. Uh, I came across a story recently, and it's about a pastor who was in a closed off country in the 1950s, and the government captured him. And they were pressing hard on him for him to rat out who else was in the congregation. And so they were torturing him, and and one day he came into the examining officer's room, and he noticed that in the corner there was this heap of rags, and there were some chains that were rattling. And to his horror, he began to realize that it was actually his mom. And it just caught him to the heart because she looked more fragile. She looked older, and he could tell that she had passed through heavy suffering as well. And so while he's processing this, the examining officer begins to talk. He says, I have heard that you Christians have ten commandments supposedly given by God which you strive to obey. I would be interested in knowing them. Would you, would you be so kind as to recite the Ten Commandments?" And, and he's, he's still in shock, but he begins to list them off only to be stopped when he gets to honor your father and mother. Well, that officer interrupts him and says, I wish to give you an opportunity to honor your mother. And here she is suffering in chains. Tell me what you know about your brethren in faith, and I promise that tonight. You and your mother will be free, and you will be able to give her care. You will be able to show her honor. Let me see now whether you really believe in God and wish to fulfill his commandments. And that's, that's heavy, isn't it? Like, th- this isn't some made-up story, some hypothetical. This was a man's actual life, and he was pushed into the hardest spot ever. I want you to listen to what he does, though. He turned to his mother, and he said, Mother, what shall I do? And the mother answered, I have taught you from childhood to love Christ and his holy church. Don't mind my suffering. Seek to remain faithful to the Savior and his little brothers. If you betray, you are no more my son. And that was the last time the pastor saw his mom. It's likely that she died under torture. This is a true story. It's a sobering story, isn't it? It's a heavy story. It can leave us asking questions of, what would I do in that instance? And I have a point with telling this story, and we're going to get to it, but I have to build back up to it first. There's something in this story that is foundational, that's at the very heart of the passage that I want to teach on today. And so we're going to get there, but we're going to let it fade into the background for a little bit. I have a tradition, if you have heard my teaching before, you know that I just like to read the passage out in front of us. It just kind of helps me have a roadmap of where we're going, and so we're going to continue that today. If you opened your Bibles, we're going to be in Colossians 1, verses 28 to 29. If not, there's verses on the screen to follow. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a potential danger when someone like me stands up here for a standalone week And I just take two verses out of the Bible to teach on. There's a potential danger that I twist things, that I rip it out of context, and I squeeze it to say something that it's not actually saying. And so I need to inject a little bit of context so we know where this verse falls, what's going on around it, and and why Paul says this at all. Well, this whole letter, the letter to the Colossians, is written by a follower of Jesus named Paul. If you've been around church before, you've heard that name Paul before. Uh, he was a special person that God used. He, he handpicked Paul and he gave him a special stewardship to bring the gospel to non-Jews. And he didn't give him the stewardship because Paul was the best of the best. He didn't give him because Paul was the smartest or Paul was the best at enduring hard things. He gave it to Paul because Paul was persecuting the church. And he was going to use Paul as an example of his grace and his love. And he is that. Paul, Paul clings to Jesus, and he starts telling uh, the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, about him. And eventually, Paul lands in prison for sharing the gospel. And, and evidently, he sits next to this other guy named Epaphras. And this is the Colossians' pastor. E- even though Paul has never met the Colossian church... And he loves them. It says in uh, chapter one, verse nine, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Your prayer life, man, it'll tell a lot about you, a lot of what you are depending on God for, a lot of what you're thankful for. And Paul doesn't just say, man, we're praying for you. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you. What Paul also hears from Epaphras the Colossians pastor, is that there's some type of false teachers that are creeping in, that are trying to deceive his church, the Colossians church. And so Paul begins to write to them to strengthen their faith, to encourage them, but also to warn them. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Translation of that is, don't be taken hostage by something else. If you have kids, you've probably told them at one point or another, like, hey, don't take candy from strangers, right? I try to go a step above that, and I point out the creepy white vans, and I say, hey, don't go near that creepy white van especially if they have candy, right? And that's essentially what Paul is doing here, right? He's saying, don't be taken captive, don't be taken hostage by this other thinking, by these other traditions that these false teachers are saying, because they're trying to entice you, they're trying to shove you in the back of a creepy white van and drive off with you. He says, no, 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 keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus, We're gonna draw out a little more context as we go, but our central verses for today start with Paul saying, Him we proclaim. Now, 10 years ago, my wife and I, we started sending out invites a little before this, uh, this time in the year for our wedding. We were getting married, and we gathered everyone that we could, gathered them together, and when we stood up on that stage to get married, it came time for the vows, And I whispered to the minister, who happened to be her dad, and I said, hey, do we have to do these vows out here? Can we go to that side room? Like, does everyone have to hear these? And I said, hey, this this wedding ring, like, is that in the Bible? Do I have to wear a wedding ring? I don't really want people to know that I'm marrying your daughter, right? No, I would never say that. That would have ended the, the wedding right then and there. No, no, no. We gathered all of our friends together, all the people we knew. We stood on the stage, and we proclaimed our vows. Like That name, proclaim, our society doesn't really use the word proclaim, right? Like It sounds a little old-fashioned or maybe something you use in a kingly court, uh, but we still do proclaim things. To proclaim is to publicly and openly communicate something with the intent that we want the information to spread far. So Chelsea and I, we made our marriage openly known in a far-reaching way. Like, literally, we could fit 295 people into our banquet hall. Like, that, that was supposed to be the list. Does anyone want to know how many people we actually invited? Anyone think it was 300? Higher. 350? Higher. 400? Higher. 450. We invited 450 people, and we could only fit 295 at our banquets, right? Like, that, that is far-reaching. Now, we knew a lot of people were out of town, and we knew a lot of people wouldn't be able to make it, but that didn't stop us from wanting them to know that we were getting married. It didn't stop them from, from us from wanting to invite them to our marriage. To proclaim is to publicly and openly communicate something with the intent that we want the information to spread far. And Paul is continually making a proclamation. He is publicly declaring something, and he's not the only one. Paul switches here to a plural, we, which is important. Just prior to this, he was in the singular. He was saying, I rejoice in my sufferings. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. But then he switches to we, him we proclaim. It's intentional. This is not just Paul that is making the proclamation. This extends beyond Paul. And it doesn't say who's included in this we. So maybe, maybe Paul is just meaning him and his coworkers. Maybe it's just Paul and other preachers. But I think the context better fits that this is believers. In general, this is believers who are proclaiming Christ. As Christians, we publicly announce something, or rather, someone. It says, him we proclaim. Now, I was at a friend's bachelor party a number of years ago, and we were playing some golf. Well, some of us were playing some golf. Some of us were not doing very good at golf. And I was asking the groomsmen what they thought of Jesus. And one of the guys, I still remember his response, he studied philosophy, and he said, I I think Jesus was just a really good teacher. That he had uncovered something that was authentic. He had uncovered something that was revolutionary. And that's what he drew people in with. And I was grateful that he was willing to answer my question. Like, Jesus can be a divided topic. It's hard to talk about Jesus with other people sometimes. But that's not an uncommon answer, is it? Like Some people will hold to Jesus as a good moral teacher, that we just need to follow his example and we'll be okay. And that sounds good at first glance, doesn't it? Like it's a safe answer to say that Jesus is a good teacher. It doesn't offend as many people, except that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say the teaching of Jesus we proclaim. It says, Jesus himself. Why? Like, why proclaim Jesus? Well, remember, there's that creepy white van of false teachers circling around the Colossian church, trying to entice people and carry them off. And Paul has been building up to this. He's been trying to describe why Jesus is the one that we would proclaim and not what these other false teachers are pushing. He says, listen to how he describes Jesus in Colossians 1.16. 16. He says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus, which means that you were made for Jesus. Uh, I like the way one theologian puts it. Uh, he says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So you were made for Jesus, and he cries, mine. Like our, our very existence is tied to the creator. Right now, we are breathing because Jesus continues to uphold us, That by itself, that's enough to proclaim Jesus, but it goes deeper. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1.21. He says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, sin broke creation, first through Satan, And then through Adam and Eve, the heavens and the earths, they will be remade because they are stained by sin. Humanity freely chose. We freely rebelled against God, and so we were separated from God. We were alienated from God, but it gets worse. It wasn't just this break that took place. We were hostile in mind. Meaning that we we wanted to push God off the throne. We wanted to usurp His reign so that we could sit on there, so that we could be our own God. And it was not His teaching, it was not Jesus' good lifestyle, it was not His morals that saved us, it was Him. Like, he was the one that saved us. He reconciled us to God, and that is past tense. If you're a believer, that has already happened. So he not only screams, mine, over all creation, but he personally cherishes you, enough to step into humanity and swap places with you. Now, I'm a CPA. No, I can't do your taxes. But it means when I hear words like reconcile, My ears perk up, right? Like it reminds me of reconciling bank statements, which I love. It's okay, I'm a nerd, I've embraced it. But reconcile means to put things back into balance. Except Jesus isn't talking about expenses, not talking about reconciling expenses. He's talking about our souls. The cost to reconcile us. to to bring us back to God, into relationship with him, was not just a painful, physical death on the cross, as horrible as that would have been. It was the payment of our sins. The one who has always cherished the Father, who has always obeyed the Father, who has always been with the Father for all of eternity, he willingly entered into time, he willingly entered into humanity, and he was willing to be cut off He was willing to be separated from God the Father to pay for our sins so that we would never have to do that. In the resurrection, when he's raised from the dead, that's like our receipt. It's God saying, I've paid for your sins in full. We don't proclaim a martyr. We proclaim a living God who couldn't even let death stop him. He sits on his throne with his work accomplished. And so he is proclaimed like what is more worthy of proclaiming that a god that not only created you not only upholds you now but would refuse to abandon you even when you're spitting in his face him we proclaim the verse goes on it says warning everyone teaching everyone with all wisdom this proclaiming of jesus this making jesus openly known has two parts to it. Paul says that part of proclaiming Jesus, part of making him publicly known is that we warn people. In my advanced age, I've come to realize that there are two people in this world, two kinds of people. There are those of us who get very nervous when our gas gauge gets to about a quarter tank, right? Like we we feel uncomfortable, we feel anxious. That's me. And then there are those of us who make it a competition to see just how long we can drive with that gas light on. See just if we can get a little farther than we did before. That's my wife, right? <laughs> Recently, I went to the dark side, and I started to be comfortable with that gas light, would drive with it on, and it was fine. I started to get a little cocky. And I, The gas light was on. I knew, I knew the warning. I saw the warning. I knew what I was supposed to do. I saw a gas station, and I saw the price of the gas station. I said, I'm not paying that. I'm going to Costco, right? So Costco was only four miles away. I'm like, we got this, this is fine. Do you want to know what happened? <laughs> there comes a point where the warning stops being a warning and it becomes a reality. So I was stuck in the middle of Grand River, cop car behind me, lights flashing as I'm calling my wife, like, hey, can you, can you bring some gas? She's like, what, you ran out of gas? I'm back in the light side, all right? Quarter tank anxiety, that's still me. I'm I'm back to feeling uncomfortable. But in general, in general, we warn so that consequences or punishments wouldn't happen. Part of proclaiming Jesus is warning people about what is coming for those who don't believe in him. You cannot proclaim Jesus as Savior. You cannot proclaim the actual Christ without explaining what you're being saved from. And Jesus is very upfront with that in his earthly ministry. He he talks about hell more than anyone else in the New Testament. In one spot in Matthew 13, he says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Part of proclaiming Jesus is warning people about what is coming for those that don't believe in him. Look, a hostile mind towards God, someone who is always trying to shove God off his throne will one day be treated as hostile for eternity. There will be a point where the warning stops being a warning, and it becomes a reality. We warn people because we care about them. We want them to repent. We want them to turn away from that. And when Paul uses this word warn, I want to give you a flavor for what it looks like. Because I've seen enough passive-aggressive Facebook posts to know that this is important, that the way that we warn people is important. It says in Acts 20, 31, this is Paul speaking, it says, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish, to warn everyone with tears. So man, night and day, Paul is admonishing. He is warning but he does it with tears. There is no arrogance. There's no condescending talk. There's no shaming. There's no guilting. There's genuine concern over what that person's sin is going to lead to, over what our sin would have led to if Jesus didn't take it away from us already. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So we proclaim a warning, but we also proclaim with teaching. It's not enough to merely show people where their sin is leading to. We also have to point out the right way. We need gospel truths. Who is God? Uh, I don't know if you guys ever buy furniture from Ikea, but I've been sucked into that a couple times. And the furniture always looks great on display, right? It looks crisp, looks good, you try not to worry about how long it'll actually last, and then you go, you go downstairs, you grab the big heavy container, you carry it all the way home in your car, and then when you open it up, the fun really begins, right? Because the instructions, there's no, there's no words on the instructions, and I really appreciate the images where it's like a big red X of like, don't do this, but sometimes I wish they had a little more uh, detail on what we should do, right? What inevitably happens is I will be squinting at the instructions, and my wife will kind of peer over my shoulder, and she'll be like, are you sure it goes that way? And I say what typical guys say. I'm like, positive. It's got to go this way. It's going to go this way. And then five minutes later, I throw it all down, and I'm frustrated. I'm like, it goes the other way. I was wrong, right? We warn. We give the big red X, but we also teach. Not just about what our sin leads to, but who our God is. You need both of those. You need warning and you need teaching together. That is how we proclaim Jesus. When you see repetition in the Bible, it's important. So Paul has said here, we warn everyone, we teach everyone. Later on the verse, he's going to say that we may present everyone, but are in Christ. Three times he's harping on everyone. Jesus is meant for everyone. Not a class of people, not a race of people, not a type of sinner. And Jesus is meant for everyone. And I think sometimes that's a good reminder for me because I have a mental list of like, oh, they, they'd never be interested in hearing about Jesus. Or, oh man, they're so far into their sin that they're not going to want to give that up. And that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say be selective of who you share the gospel with. It says we warn everyone, we teach Everyone. It is inclusive. Everyone needs Jesus. And so whoever God puts in front of us, man, that's who we're warning. That's who we are teaching. And we're warning and teaching in all wisdom. So likely, false teachers, right? Creepy white band circling around the Colossian church. Likely, they're holding out candy. They're trying to entice them with something. And it's with a secret wisdom. It's with, if you had this secret wisdom, you would be more spiritually elite. You guys are kind of babies with what you know. We know something more up here, right? They're, they're trying to draw people in with this. And Paul just refutes that openly. He says in chapter two, verse three, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Like our proclamation of Christ includes all wisdom. Now, now, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. And when we proclaim Jesus, we are warning everyone. We are teaching everyone with the right uses of knowledge because they come from his spirit. Like Our wisdom and what we're proclaiming, it's coming from the source of life. This was not a really good idea that some man or woman made up. This was God-given. It's an all wisdom. So, We spent some time talking about proclaiming Jesus, talked about warning, talked about teaching, talked about all wisdom, but there's a point to it. Like there is a purpose for why we proclaim Jesus. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So the, the end goal in a person's maturity is the person's maturity. When I hear maturity, I tend to think of someone with a certain sense of knowledge or experience, or maybe someone who behaves in a certain way. Like our picture of maturity can be gradual, like we're slowly grown up into maturity. It can be comparative, where maybe if I stand next to this person, I look pretty mature. And if I stand next to this person, I look less mature, right? So it can be gradual, it can be comparative, That's not the way the Bible uses this word for maturity. It's not the way Paul or anyone else in the New Testament uses it. It's the word teleos. And if you're like, huh, that sounds kind of familiar. Pastor Joe talked about it last week. And if you missed his message, he did an excellent job. And you should go back and watch that sermon. But this this Christian maturity, this teleos, It's not based on how much of the Bible you know compared to other people. It's not based on how many good things you do compared to other people. It's getting at the root of something else. We see this word pop up in Jesus' earthly ministry. There's a rich young ruler that comes up to him and asks him a basic question. He says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And this is how Jesus responds in Matthew 19. He says, if you would enter life... Keep the commandments. ruler said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What, What do I still lack? And I imagine there's a pause here. I imagine that Jesus takes a little bit of time to look at this guy. And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, if you'd be teleos, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And this rich young ruler, he is knocking it out of the park. Like Jesus gives him some commandments that he can test his life against and the rich young ruler says, check, 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 check. And Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that about this man, and he's trying to draw him out. The, the ruler is like, what am I missing? And Jesus says something that kind of sounds like a sneer to me sometimes when I read my Bible. It's imagined. But when I read it, sometimes it sounds like, if you would be perfect, and chiding him. Like, ah. If you would be perfect, then just go sell your stuff, come follow me, you brown noser. But that's that's not what's happening, right? That's especially not the tone. I'm just telling you what I think sometimes when I read my Bible. Jesus isn't saying if you would be flawless. He's saying if you would be whole. If you would be undivided, if you would be mature, you specifically rich young ruler. You need to sell everything, give it to the poor, and then you come and follow me. And there's a line drawn in the sand. And the the man walks away sorrowful because he had great possessions. No matter what he said about wanting eternal life, inside he's divided. He is not whole. It's why he asks, what do I still lack? He can feel it, He's mostly about God, but not completely. And that's important. He's mostly about God, but not completely. And that's a dangerous place to be. Can I share a fear that I have, New Hope? Something that I'm praying for you guys about? My fear is that some of us are mostly about God, but not completely. And that as we grow bigger and bigger, that you'll be able to hide, that no one will ever notice, that Sunday morning we'll be all about Jesus, and we blend in, and Sunday night it'll be back to looking at porn, same as usual, that Tuesday morning we'll come to our women's Bible studies, and we'll blend in, we'll contribute, but we will refuse to forgive someone in our life, someone that has hurt us, someone that has shamed us, we will refuse to show them the mercy that God showed us. That we'll go to men's study in the evenings, and we'll blend in, we'll talk about guy stuff, but really our job is our idol. We will sacrifice nothing for our job. Our family doesn't come into play. The love of Jesus doesn't come into play. Our job is everything. My fear is that some of us are really good at playing church, where we're mostly about Jesus but, but not completely. And we think that it's okay because we confuse Christian maturity with knowing a lot about Jesus. Listen, because this is important. Christian maturity is not how much you know your Bible. It's not how many times you've sat under good teaching. It's not about how much you know. It's where does your true allegiance lie? My fear is that some of us are mostly about God, but not completely, and no one notices to warn us. And this is me giving you a chance to step into the light that that wouldn't be you. On the outside, the rich young ruler, he looks like he's killing it, right? Like everyone's looking at him, he's like, check, 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 check. He's giving all of these good, godly things, but on the inside, he is divided. Are you divided? Is there a line in the sand that you refuse to cross, something you refuse to hand over to God because it would hurt, because it would be uncomfortable, it would be awkward, or maybe because you think that thing has true life? No, no, Him we proclaim because Jesus is worth being all in on. Jesus is where true life is. He will satisfy things in your heart that grumbling never will. He will satisfy you in a deeper way than wealth or romance or reputation ever can. Do you believe that? Do you want that? Paul says the purpose of proclaiming Jesus is so that we would present people like that. To be mature in Christ is to live undivided in our lives. The Apostle Paul is mature not because God has revealed more and more information to him, not because he is flawless where he's without sin. Apostle Paul still sinned. He is mature because he lives his life undivided. He can say when he's on death's row to live is Christ and to die is gain. The story that I brought up in the beginning the pastor and his mother have been stripped of everything. And it's a, it's a true story of a pastor getting thrown into prison and tortured. And, and I don't bring it up to fear monger, to say that that's what our country's going to be like in 10 to 20 years. I don't bring it up to shame you, to guilt you, to make you feel bad for living in prosperity that we don't have to go through that. I bring it up to draw you in, to want that, to thirst for that type of maturity. Everything has been stripped from them. They are in the darkest, hardest place in their life, and they are still whole. They refuse to let go of Jesus. And I'm really excited someday in heaven to find those two people, to track them down, and to rejoice in Jesus with them, to sing, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Listen specifically to the mom and her words again pastor turned to his mother and said, "'Mother, what shall I do?' mother answered, "'I have taught you from childhood "'to love Christ and His Holy Church. "'Don't mind my suffering. "'Seek to remain faithful to the Savior "'and His little brothers. "'If you betray, you are no more my son.'" And that was the last time that the pastor ever saw his mother. It's likely that she died under torture. To be mature in Christ is to live undivided in our lives where nothing holds sway over us. Our loving and obeying Jesus, not the riches of the world, not the comfort of this world, not the sin that still calls to us. Look, being whole in Christ doesn't mean you're not going to sin again. It means when you do sin, Jesus is your life. And so you want to get up You want to confess that sin, and you want to run towards Jesus even harder. Because to be mature means that Jesus is our life. Him we proclaim. To close us out, Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Man, I love that the Bible just shoots straight. Like Paul says, people's undivided love of Jesus that is what he will toil for. He doesn't say this is a walk in the park. He doesn't say, oh, it's gonna be so easy, just, just come, check it out. He uses words like struggling, which is used of athletes when they're competing, when they're pursuing athletic glory. My wife was telling me about an ultra marathon runner uh, she follows who was gonna do a 250 mile race. Anyone yeah. interested in that? Yeah, me neither. And, So she's training, she spent months training for this race, and she's 30 miles into it, and something's wrong. She she takes her shoe off, and there is blood dripping. There is raw feet, there are blisters everywhere on her foot. They think it's because she had new socks that she never washed, that somehow that screwed up her feet. But regardless, she's faced with a decision. She's 30 miles in. Is she gonna throw the flag in, or is she gonna keep going? 220 miles, step after painful step after painful step, she continued. She struggled. She ended up getting like third place or something in her, uh, for the race. But it's that intensity, it's that grit that Paul is talking about. Proclaiming Jesus, warning, teaching about Jesus, that is work. It will be uncomfortable. It will be hard. But Paul quickly backs off and he says, it's not by my energy that I'm doing this. It's God's. God is supplying the energy, and he's the one that's working it out inside of me. This proclaiming that Paul is doing, it's tied into his personal satisfaction and relationship with God. And as Paul abides in God, God is going to work through him. God is the one supplying the energy and powerfully working inside. That's what enables him to proclaim Jesus? Look, we're not proclaiming some shoddy theology, some lousy theology that will break down after a year or two. We're proclaiming a Savior whose love for you obliterated death itself. Like, have you tasted that? Will you abide in that? I could have ended with verse 28. But I wanted verse 29 because it's a good challenge for all of us. And I I will gladly spend the rest of my days toiling and struggling for the same thing. To proclaim him in order that others would be made whole. That they wouldn't be mostly about God, but completely about him. Because I've tasted that he is good. Because I believe that all things were made by him and through him and for him. Paul switches tenses. He went from him we proclaim to for this I toil. Paul will toil and struggle and blistered and bloody feet after 30 miles and he'll keep going. What are you willing to struggle for in this life? And will you care about that 10,000 years into eternity? Listen, evangelism telling people about Jesus, proclaiming him, it seems like there's generally two camps in American Christianity. There's those of us who would say, like, not my gift, not my job, not my problem. And then there's some of us who would say, man, I want to do that. I want to tell people about Jesus, but I don't have an example. No one's ever showed me how to do that. There's not a lot of us that are actually doing it. And so, New Hope wants to come alongside you. And if you want to proclaim Jesus, if you want to grow in how you can share him with other people, if you want accountability that you're actually doing that, we're going to offer a three week class in June. It's going to be June 14th, June 21st, June 28th. Uh, You can come straight from dinner. It's from 5 to (laughs) 7. Straight from work. It'd be weird to come straight from dinner. Straight from work from 5 to 7. We'll feed you dinner, we'll feed you some pizza. If you have babies, young kids, man, bring them. We're going to try and get some childcare workers. But we want to resource you. We want to equip you to go out and proclaim Jesus. And so if you're interest, interested about that, Jeff sends out weekly emails. You'll find it in Jeff's weekly email, or you can go on our website. If you can fill out the form if you're interested, that'd be great. That way we know how much pizza to order. That way people don't revolt if we run out of pizza. But even if not, man, I, I would rather you show up then you feel like you can't show up. Show up last minute if you have to. Him we proclaim. That people wouldn't be mostly about Jesus, but completely about Him. Man, you hope know, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to proclaim Jesus to people that don't know Him. We won't have that opportunity in eternity. Use it. If you are one of the people that are mostly about Jesus and not completely, this is a chance. And there's no shame. There's no condemnation. Come talk to us. Let us help you root it out so that you can be made whole. But don't just sit on it. We're going to have people in the prayer room in the back. Man, if you want prayer for anything, it doesn't have to be related to this message. If you want prayer in your life, we'd love to pray for you. If you want to talk with me about anything, maybe you're not even mostly about Jesus, maybe you're not about Jesus at all, and you just want to learn more about him, I'd love to talk with you. But we have an opportunity, New Hope. If you love Jesus, if you are mature, let's proclaim him. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for the people that are in this congregation that are in this room right now that are watching on live stream, I thank you that they are yours, that you would spare no expense to save them, that you would send your own son, Jesus, to die on a cross and reconcile them to you. I pray that you would break the floor on that, that we would grasp that deeper, that we would believe that deeper, that you would show us in our life where we can have conversations with people about that, not because we're trying to sell people something, but because we love you. We've tasted that you're good, and we want to share that with other people. So I pray that you'd use your spirit, Lord, and that you would convict where you need to convict, that you would encourage where you need to encourage, and that the gospel light would go out because of it. It's in your wonderful name that we pray. Amen.